Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm John, your friendly host, and I am so excited to be here for this episode with Nick Singh, who is the best-selling author of Ace the Data Science Interview and the founder and CEO of Data Lemur, which is this incredible free SQL interview platform. How's it going, Nick? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. I can't wait to talk about my whole journey in teaching developers and data scientists and MLH and how that's impacted my life. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear about it which is a great segue into the first question I always like to ask folks, which is, what is your origin story? How did you first get involved with this stuff? I was lucky enough to go to a magnet high school, and they had two classes you could take. You could either take beginner CS or advanced CS for people with a little bit of CS background. Okay, being the high achiever I was, I was like, okay, let's go do the advanced CS one and see what's up. I was a dumb high school or whatever. And the first thing they had you do before you could take it to show that you're advanced was code up stuff on a TI-84 calculator. So like in basic, I can't even remember TI basic is what it was called. And that was the first time I ever wrote like a for loop, first time I ever took user input. And it just evolved. Like that was the first time I got to see like, whoa, I could make a factorial calculator. I could make numbers multiply. I could do a square automate finding common, what is LCD? Lowest common denominator. Yes. two numbers. So making those small little tools on my own calculator so that my calculator is like a smart calculator. It's not just doing two plus two. It's doing all these kind of functions. That was the first time I really fell in love with coding. And I was like, whoa, for loops, while loops, user input. And I started making my own like text adventure games. I mean, they were terrible. No one used them. But that was the first time I was like, felt the magic of coding came about because I felt like I could be creative in a way that I had never known before, because I wasn't very good at art. You know, I was okay with music, but this was the first time I could make a game. And sure, it sucked, but it was my game and I could create it. So it was really fun. Yeah, I feel like your usage of the TI calculator was probably more productive than mine. I mostly used it to like play Tetris in math class and look like I was calculating stuff. Absolutely. So you did those early experimental things, right? Like tinkering with code. How did that transition into like your professional career? Like, did you go to school for CS? Did you really study the stuff? Did you learn yeah. on your own? So it's pretty interesting. I, again, went to a magnet high school. Everyone was really competitive. So I was lucky to start coding early. But you know how kids are, how teenagers are. People were flexing on me. Again, I was at a super nerdy school. People were flexing at me because they were better coders. I felt really small. I felt stupid. And I actually thought, you know what? I like engineering, but... In college, I'm going to study biomedical. I might be a doctor. I don't know. I didn't think of CS or software as something that I could do because I was like, look, there are these real geniuses. And of course, in CS, you have this archetype of like that lone genius who is an introvert who's just spending all their time coding. And I thought I was extroverted. I didn't spend all my time coding. I found it challenging. And of course, in CS, everyone makes things look really easy. And I was like, this is actually really, really hard. So I actually kind of felt dissuaded from computer science in high school. And so when I wrote my college apps and they say, what do you want to study? I wrote biomedical engineering. I wrote systems. I wrote mechanical engineering. I knew I wanted to be an engineer, but I strayed away from CS. What kind of clicked to me though, I mean, what changed my path 
getting back towards the CS realm was I was a DJ later in high school and I did sweet 16s, high school dances. I did even like an engagement party for like 30 year olds, which was a big deal when I was like 17. I'd mix Bollywood and hip hop music. And I got this really entrepreneurial drive at that moment when I realized, whoa, I'm a super mega nerd going to this nerdy high school, doing all this math stuff, but I can moonlight as a DJ. I can make money. I can do things. And everyone doubted me around that time because it's like, what is this nerd doing DJing? What does he even know? He's not even good at music. He doesn't have, what is it? Perfect pitch. Again, at that age, people would flex what they got, right? So people would say, oh, I'm a concert pianist. I have perfect pitch. I can sing. And I'm like, dude, I took piano for like a year and a half. You know, I played clarinet for like two years. Like I didn't know music. I got in DJing. I love business and I love this aspect of, whoa, I can do things on my own. Around the same time, you've been watching Shark Tank, watching the movie Social Network with Zuckerberg. And I'm like, wait a second, maybe the CS thing could be an interesting path towards entrepreneurship. Maybe it's okay that I'm not the world's best software person. Maybe there's some room for me to build cool things. I like building cooler things than learning CS theory. So around that time is kind of when I went back into this mode of like, wait, instead of DJing, could I make a real business with code? That's how I fell in love and back in love with building products, building businesses and trying to be like a Zuckerberg because I saw that social network movie. And I thought it was the coolest thing. And then there's that movie, The Internship. Like, I don't want to pretend I was in the game to make the world a better place at that time. I just saw cool movies and I thought, oh, wow, that seems really cool. So that's kind of how I pivoted more towards the CS thing. And in school at the University of Virginia, I studied, majored in systems and information engineering and minored in computer science. But really, it was almost like a double major because I was like two classes short. What, what was your DJ name? DJ Lil Singh. So Lil Singh because I'm short. Lil <laughs> Singh because I love Lil Wayne. And yeah, that's kinda, that was my favorite rapper back in the day. Love it. That's really funny. So I saw that like once you went through college, right, and you entered the industry, you did a lot of different things. And you know, a lot of the folks I talk to, at least in our community, have this like very structured path of like, I get a computer science degree, I go become a software engineer, I become a senior software engineer, and it's like very set out for them. I noticed you've bounced around a lot, right? Like you did some growth engineering, software engineering, data science, like all these different things. I'd love to hear about the growth engineering part of it, because I feel like it's an interesting like twist or specialization on using your coding skills. And I'm guessing it ties back to some of that like entrepreneurial feeling that you were having. Exactly right. So definitely, I want to make a caveat that sometimes we obsess over titles. But I like to just think of I like business, I like data, I like engineering, right? And sometimes I'm more engineering heavy, sometimes more data heavy, sometimes more business heavy, but it always boils down basically to those few skills. So that's kind of why my titles have been all over the place. But in reality, I've always been doing some form of data, some form of coding and some form of building for people or building products, right? Not just doing crazy backend stuff that no one sees that's performance improvement work, but more like being close to the business, being close to the product. I started out my career on Facebook's growth engineering team. So technically my title was software engineer, but you could also call yourself a growth engineer, just like a front-end engineer is still a software engineer or a back-end is still a software engineer. So technically I was a SWE and I went through the software engineering interview loops, but I put the moniker of growth engineering because practically when I'm on the job, I think of myself as a growth engineer. So what is growth engineering for people who don't know who are listening? It's this really unique form of using software, data, and a little bit of marketing instinct 
to grow a user base in a more quantitative way, in a more calculated, engineered way. So think about doing A-B testing, doing rapid prototyping, and trying to do little changes to the user acquisition funnel or trying to add little features to improve the retention. So those are things that growth engineers do. Now, of course, software engineers can do growth engineering work because at the end of the day, you're implementing a new feature experience. But you think of the things in a different lens because I'm not building to be robust. I'm not building for scale. I'm building with this very hacker mindset of let's build and prototype things, see the numbers, and A-B test everything because we have no idea what's going to work. And actually, what got me into this growth engineering thing is two things. First was my little startup I did in college called Rapstock.io, which was this stock market for rappers. It was sort of like fantasy football, but for music. So instead of drafting football players onto your football team, you can draft artists onto your virtual music label. And then using data from Spotify's API, I would allow people to kind of quantify how well different artists are doing. So it was called Rapstock.io because it was like a stock market for rappers. That's another way to think about it. You can think of it as fantasy football or stock market. Anyways, I grew that to about 2,000 monthly active users. So that's one place where I learned about growth and this idea that marketing can be engineered and calculated. The second way was through hackathons. The hackathon mindset, I got to participate in HackDo. I won best use of AWS at PenApps back in like 2015, maybe 16. And then I also won HackUVA in 2017, in my senior year of college. I love hackathons. I mean, that's why I'm here on the podcast today. And hackathons taught me this rapid experimentation, rapid prototyping type of mindset. So that's kind of how I found myself on Facebook's growth engineering team. Thanks to Rapstock and thanks to my participation in MLH events. I absolutely love that. I'm curious, like you said, you won a lot of hackathons. What was like your hackathon archetype, right? Like, were you there to win? Were you there to like try something crazy? Like what was your sort of like goal going into these events? So the first few hackathons I went to, I was just a new, I was just trying to build, learn, get some free swag, eat some food, hang out with friends, you know, that kind of vibe. I think PenApps, I went there trying to win and we won the best use of AWS. So that was fun. But hacked UVA my senior year, this was in like the second to last month of graduation. And I'd never like won completely outright first place grand prize. When I went into that, I really was like, I am going to win. I'm going to win. I told myself 20 times and I won at the end. I know maybe that's not the hacker ethos, but I was like, this is, I'm graduating. I'm tired of coming up short. Let's prove my worth. Let's get a win under the belt. And I did. I think it is the hacker ethos. And also it's not like the kind of the special thing about hackathons is that everyone can have their own independent goals and they all coexist in the same format, right? It's kind of like running a marathon, you know, like you're probably not running a marathon to win because it's going to be like someone who's been training their whole life for that. But even finishing is an accomplishment a lot of the time. Yep, exactly. So definitely if I hadn't won, I wouldn't have like been sad. I wouldn't have wasted a weekend because I still got to build something really cool. But because it was in my backyard at my own alma mater, you know, I had an offer with Facebook and I had a big ego. I was like, yo, I got to crush this. You know, this is my last chance. Let's do it. So I did. That's fantastic. How do you win a hackathon? Like, how does someone win a hackathon? What goes I into that? wrote a guide on how to win hackathons. So y'all can check it out on nixing.com. Just say how to win hackathons. You'll find great it. plug. Perfect plug. Yes. I think the biggest tips that I would say is. People try to think of the idea right on the spot, but definitely if you're a serious contender, think about what you want to build 
and kind of know your teammates. I think definitely winning teams are the most competitive ones. They don't just find random people to do a random idea that changes halfway through. I think that's one big thing. I think the second thing is at the end of the day, humans, we're visual people. We want to know a story. Stories sway us. Visuals sway us. Demos sway us. Mm -hmm. So I definitely would focus on making ideas that I thought like be visualized, could be seen, could be felt. I mean, I was not very good at hardware, so I never actually built like a physical prototype, but I would always see people doing hardware stuff, putting out really cool demos. So I never tried to tackle like low level optimization work where I'm like, oh yeah, I moved this number from five to nine and look at me. I always tried to build a cool experience. An example of that was Draw Platformer, which is what I built in Hack UVA that won first place. The story is I did this with my younger brother. And oh, that's cool. yeah, yeah. And it was just me and him, just two of us. And it was huge because, you know, when there's bigger teams, you feel a little intimidated. But I'll give you an example of telling the story. So I told them the story like, look, this is me and my brother. We played a lot as kids. And then we started playing video games. And we didn't feel that video games were as creative as how we used to play when we were little kids with Legos and cars and making up our own stories. A lot of how we used to play as brothers changed over time where we were just more consuming video games, consuming movies, consuming TV. So that led me to think about how can I make play more creative? How could I bridge the digital world with the physical world? That's called draw platformer. So what I allowed people to do was on a piece of paper, you can draw your own platformer style video game. So like a platformer video game is like Mario, you know, just platforms and you jump around, collect coins. So basically with a paper and pencil, You could draw a little map and then you could use a yellow marker to make coins. You could make red on the floor and that would be lava. That'd be translating to lava. And I would use computer vision to scan your image, your hand-drawn image, and turn that into a game that you could play in the browser in JavaScript. And you'd actually be able to jump on the platforms and collect the coins. And it wasn't crazy computer vision type work. I mean, these days, computer vision has come so far. But back in the day, this was, again, 2017, OpenCV, just did a little bit of image processing. It's not that hard to say, where are the yellow pixels in your image? Put the yellow pixels in the game. You know, where's the red? Make that the red lava, right? Something simple like that. But through the story, brothers getting into play, through a physical demo of having the judge make their own map, we scan the picture, upload it to the server, and 30 seconds later, they're playing their own game, and it worked flawlessly. Like, they're playing their own game that they created. That was the kind of thing that I think helped us win. And that's what I mean by something that visualizes well with a good story. Because no one there else was brothers, really. And no one there else had this kind of convincing, like, hey, judge, draw your own thing and play it and be happy. Yeah. Interactive demos have a massive leg up. And this is like, I think, in hackathons, but also any situation where you're trying to show off something you built, like a startup or at work when you're showing something to your boss, like, Having it be interactive just like levels something up so significantly. Yep. It's interactivity and it's your interactivity. Right. right? You drew the game and now you're going to play your own game. You're not going to play my game. That's the magic because then you feel like, whoa, I got to do my own thing and it worked rather than a pre-canned interactive stuff that could be interactive. But yeah, exactly right. That's wild. So how did that all translate into writing a best-selling book, right? Like, I can sort of imagine how data science is tied into a lot of your experience with growth engineering, but like, why a book? Like, how did you get there? So I'm at Facebook. I'm enjoying my work, sort of, but I'm also a little bit getting burnt out. So then I move on to a startup called SafeGraph, which does work in the geospatial analytics and location data space. 
It was a small early stage startup with 18 people when I joined. I think there's like 100 employees there now. But I got to do a little bit of everything, a little bit of data, a little bit of marketing, data evangelism, just like everything. Around that time, so I'm like a big part of what I got to do at SafeGraph was to build demos and build content that would help data science and ML teams understand the value of our geospatial data sets. Because SafeGraph, they were selling a data set. They were not selling an API or a tool or a SaaS tool or anything like that. They were literally selling a CSV of really interesting data about physical places that hedge funds and retail analytics companies would buy. So it was a pure data company selling CSVs straight up. So, I mean, obviously it's hard to market that. So you have to build some interesting stuff around it. And that's kind of how I learned how to do technical communication. At the same time, I'm hanging out with my good friend, Kevin Huo. He was a data scientist at Facebook. We went to high school together. We've been longtime friends. Then after Facebook, he was a quant on Wall Street. So me and him are just always riffing about ideas. We're longtime friends. We're both into data. And we realized around when COVID hit, this is happening in summer of 2020, a few months after COVID, you know, people had lost their jobs, offers were rescinded, and we were all afraid. And we just saw people getting really wrecked because of how much turbulence there was. And look, we couldn't do anything in the public health side. You know, I couldn't make a vaccine. I couldn't do nothing like that. Around that time, we had this idea like, look, Cracking the Coding Interview is a best-selling book. Lead code's been around for software engineers. Where's that for data? Where's the cracking the coding interview? Where's the lead code for data? And that's kind of what clicked for both of us. We we're like, look, we've been thinking about this for a year or two, but we were thinking someone else would do it. We were waiting for someone else to do it. And both me and him just one night during COVID, we we're like, look, like, what are we doing? You know, and he also did hackathons too. So we're like, why don't we just prototype it? Why don't we do it? Right. Cause why are we still waiting, especially with COVID and causing all this job loss? Like no one's stepping up. Why don't we try to do our part to help? So we started prototyping on the book, and the prototype of the book was basically blog posts, big, long blog posts about SQL interviews, stats interviews, ML interviews, coding interviews, and best practices. And those went really viral on LinkedIn and helped me get so many followers there and a lot of views and kind of helped me validate that this was a real need, right? It's that kind of lean startup MVP kind of mindset. Let's go validate before we write a full book. Because frankly, Kevin and I are not good writers. Again, I'm an engineer through and through. I took zero liberal arts classes at UVA because I studied systems and CS. So I was just jam-packed with all these technical classes. I took zero liberal arts classes because I didn't like writing. But through prototyping it, through realizing we can help people, through all of that, we decided, yep, let's definitely do the book. And a year later, August of 2021, the book came out. And since then, it's been selling really well and has about sold over 25,000 copies and is the number one bestseller wow. on Amazon. That's incredible. How did you write it then if you don't consider yourself a good writer, right? Because obviously, like if it sold so well, there must be something there more than the technical stuff. Perfect. So two things is, I guess I'm a better writer than I was when I started all of this. So I think a better writer could have done the book way faster, way easier. And it took us a lot of rewriting, a lot of work with our editors, a lot of just thinking and thinking and rewriting. So that's the first thing. The second thing is working at SafeGraph did help me become a better technical communicator. So compared to college, when I really didn't write, when I was at SafeGraph, writing was the only way to get the word out that, hey, we have this data set, here's how it works, and here's what you can do with it. So I did a lot of that kind of technical communication work at SafeGraph. And I was forced to write, which is kind of how I started doing writing. Last piece was, I never thought of myself as this liberal arts, talented writer, 
anything like that. But having like getting some traction on LinkedIn definitely gave me the confidence that I have something worth saying. So even if I'm not the best writer, I think someone would still enjoy it or there would still be value in it. Because it's really easy if you don't have that piece to discount your own work and say, hey, you know, I'm not good at writing and it makes sense. No one wants to read it. But once I started realizing that, hey, even if I make some grammar mistakes, hey, even though I use really boring analogies and metaphors all the time and to do all kinds of writing, you know, I don't do the writing best practices, I'm able to help people because fundamentally there's this hole. So that's the first piece. I'm like better at writing than I was before. And the second big piece here, John, is this kind of product mindset of building things people want, right? That's what YC tells people. At Facebook, that's kind of a similar mantra. We're trying to build for people and consumers. Safecraft, I'm trying to build data sets that ML and data science teams will want. And if you build something that no one cares about, your startup's going to fail. Throughout all this, I realized, hey, look, how I got to sell well is even if I'm not the world's best writer, right? As long as I'm solving a real pain point, I'll do well as a book. And interviewing was a real pain point because as mentioned, there just wasn't anything there for data people before our book came around. It was just random haphazard medium blogs and some people looking at Glassdoor before the night of their interview to see what was asked or people just thinking data science interviews are just like software interviews. So they just only do data structure and algorithms interview questions and kind of completely blank on the fact that they're not interviewing for software, they're interviewing for data and that looks different. So that's kind of how I would attribute our success, just solving a real problem. And I guess I got better at writing over time. So let's talk about like that hole in the market, right? What was the traditional way that people became data scientists? Because as you're describing the different skill sets, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around like where people would normally learn those things, right? It's not a CS curriculum. I don't think there's any like major in data science in college. So these days there is actually, but back then it wasn't a thing. These days there's masters in data science programs, but there's also enough schools, like at least 50 that have an undergraduate major in data science, but this is all new in the last few years. Oh, wow. I think that you can think of this as the software analogy, which is even if you study and major in computer science, you can still find a Google software engineering interview tricky because dynamic programming, I mean, that was just something we did in the algorithms class for like two weeks, but real life, I mean, you're not doing dynamic programming problems that are really tricky all the time. Yeah, you go to the Google interview and you get these crazy questions about trees. Again, trees is something I learned in school in my data structure and algorithms class. But day to day, when I'm coding around making a prototype, winning a hackathon, there's no tree data structure in any of that, is there, right? Like, So, I mean, sure, low level, there's a tree or a DB tree, sorry, but I can't even remember, some tree in your database, B tree. B-tree, yeah, right? B-tree. But like day to day, I'm just trying to write some SQL queries and store some data in a database. Who cares if there's a B-tree or not? So I think that's kind of the same vibe that happened in data science that, yes, even if you can learn data science in a boot camp or in school, the interview process did look different. And 90% of people would wing it. And 10% of people who were in the know because they went to the right Ivy League schools or they had the right connections, they would know how to crack it. And that's basically the reason we wrote the book because me and Kevin having worked at Facebook, Google, him having worked on Wall Street, he went to Penn, you know, I went to this nerdy high school, we had that kind of connections to like know what interview processes were like. But 90 95% of people don't have that kind of network to even know. So most people would just wing it and they'd fail and which is why these data roles go to the same types of people from the same schools for the majority of data has existed. I mean, things are diversifying now, across education levels and gender and race and all that stuff. But back then, I mean, it was really just Stanford people who studied CS. 
think. Yeah. I always tell people that like interviewing is its own standalone skill set. Like regardless of how good of a programmer you are or data scientist or anything else, like interviewing is like a contrived situation that you have to practice for because it's not necessarily reflective of your knowledge about the actual thing, right? It's like this really specific set of like almost like trivia. Yeah. I would definitely say there is some merit more than it's not just true trivia, but I'm sure. Yeah. That's maybe hyperbolic. Like, yeah, of course it's not exactly the same and that can surprise people. I'll give you a quick example of that. I took a databases class through the CS department in undergrad. And I learned all this stuff about like Cartesian logic, first, second, third, normal forms, normalization, theory, proofs. You know, I did everything about databases except writing lots of SQL queries. And then you get into industry and it's like, okay, who cares how the database works? I mean, if you're a data engineer or database administrator, fine. But for the 90% of business data people, PMs, you just want to write some queries. That was the part that wasn't even really covered that much. It was just kind of, we just walked past it. So I left college having databases done without really knowing how to write SQL queries and being able to translate business problems into SQL queries. I mean, that's kind of why I started Data Lemur, actually, kind of segues nicely into that stuff because, yeah, a lot of people take tutorials in SQL, but they don't have that problem solving piece. And that's why Data Lemur is not a place to learn SQL. We don't try to teach people the basics of SQL or, or basics of how databases work. It's all about practicing on real SQL interview questions, because even if you know SQL, it's different than how companies run their SQL interviews. Yeah. So that's a great segue. I'm curious, like, now that you're doing all this work, right? Like you've built this platform, Data Lemur, you've built this best-selling book. What do you see in the landscape of data science education, right? You mentioned there's like 50 or so universities that offer it as a major, but I know there's certainly like, boot camps, self-taught resources, all sorts of different ways to get into the field. How does that all fit together? Like, are they working? Yeah, I think things are working. I think it's all good. I think I'm definitely like a free market capitalist. So I'm just like, if there's 10 boot camps and they're doing stuff and they exist after five years, I think they're doing a good job. Even if I didn't do a boot camp or I don't think it's for everybody, I think it's fine. Same with these university majors. So I don't really have too many qualms. And I just think that the only thing what I get to see, so I can't really critique like a master's program or a boot camp because I haven't done either of those things. But what I would just critique, which is a little bit more meta, is a lot of this education is about like theory. And theory is awesome. And theory is a great place to start. But just so much of industry is that hackathon hacker mentality of like, let's get stuff done, right? And databases, that exact same story is like, hey, for all the knowledge about B trees and how databases run an index and how they work. I couldn't write SQL queries to answer questions about my user acquisition funnel, which I got to learn because working at Facebook, that's what you had to do. But uh, going into it, even with the, you know, uh, practically a CS major, I didn't know any of that stuff. So that's the only thing that a lot of developer education should be taught more practically. And we should ignore some, not ignore, we should do some of the theory stuff later. We should first get people excited. We should then, after they're excited, have them apply the basics, and then they can go learn the theory if they're so inclined. And I think a lot of developer education, whether it's in school or boot camps, I think that they don't get people excited enough. And then even if they're excited, then they hit them with theory and then they get bored. And I'll give you a quick example, a very concrete one. I can't critique all data science education. I'll just talk about SQL real quick. 
So many SQL tutorials start with, hey, here's how you create a table, and here's how you insert data into a table. And when you create a table, there's all kinds of foreign key constraints, primary key constraints, all kinds of BS that has nothing to do with, you know, if you're 99% of people working with databases in SQL, you're just querying stuff and trying to find answers to your questions, right? So whenever I see a tutorial start with the syntax data markup language, DML, I think, I can't even, I'm blanking on the name, but basically when you start there, Truly, in theory, you would want to start with creating your table, but in practice, the tables are always there for you. What you want to do is query them. So just having this mindset, you'll see this now. Once I say this, you'll notice like 90% of tutorials start with stuff that you don't actually do 90% of the time. So just having this mentality, I think just I would wish more boot camps and programs just apply this in all places, whether it's stats, whether it's ML, whether it's in Python, like get people excited and then hit them with the things that they actually care about first. and then fill in the gaps later. Yeah, I see a lot of similarities to what you're describing to programming education, where it's like, here is how a variable works. Here is how a loop works. And that's important. You have to know that stuff. But it doesn't necessarily explain how you get to your vision being a working thing, right? Like, it's like, like, I love to bake. And it's almost like if you like took a class and they're like, here is how you grind flour. But they never teach you how to like, make a cake, right? It's really disconnected. With that cake analogy, right? I wouldn't even try to teach you how to make a cake. I would take you to a bakery. Yep. And the first day we'd just eat six cakes and be like, (laughs) and and I just make subtle things like, oh, this is a a great class cheesecake, this kind of cake. Later on, we'll learn why the cheesecake comes out this way and why this cake comes out that way and why this cake was dry and which one was wet. But yeah. the first day, I'm just going to eat cake and we'll take a little bit of notes and we'll try to like understand what makes a good cake. And that's how I'll get excited. Because once I show you, yo, this is a famous bakery, you all see this cake's a little dry, right? Oh, yep. you see this cake's a little undercooked, right? You know, once you have that taste and then when we get into the cooking class and I tell you, hey, you know what? Don't want to overbake it. You want to have this timer because remember that cake we had yesterday? Then it all clicks. So I'd start yeah. by taking kids out to the bakery and eat a lot of cake. <laughs> that's a great methodology. So when you're talking about SQL and querying data, one thing I've been thinking about recently a lot is ChatGPT. And I'm sure you've been thinking about it too, because it is incredible at writing SQL queries. It is. How do you think that factors into like the future of data science and what you're teaching people? It's definitely made me ponder as well. Like I do not have all the answers. And given how fast things are improving, it is very hard for me to predict the future. So I would definitely say a few things, which is one, Let's not underestimate ChatGPT. It's definitely here and it's definitely meant to be used and can help you. So I think if you don't want to get crushed by these AI tools, start using them right now. So day to day, if you're working and you already know your SQL, I have no problem with people using ChatGPT. Even if it makes small mistakes, let's go correct them. Now, if you're learning this stuff, I still think there's value in learning it for a few reasons. One is I think for analysts, maybe they can get by with ChatGPT. But if you want to do data engineering or database administration, I do think those things would still need a deep knowledge of SQL. The second interesting thing is ChatGPT makes mistakes. That's okay. I don't mind that. I think you do need to know SQL to correct its mistakes, right? Or you need to know something. So I don't think that you need to remember all the syntax as much as you might have needed to in the past. And I mean, that was always never even a thing because we had Google, you know? I still think there's enough value for enough people because even if ChatGPT can generate the snippet, someone, a human, has to verify it's correct and doing what needs to be done. 
The other interesting piece that won't go away is a lot of the Dana Lemur SQL interview questions you'll see, which are collected from companies like Facebook and Google, half the battle is taking a vague business problem like, hey, I want to know the frequency distribution of how people tweet it, or hey, I want to see what the churn rate is, month over month churn rate. Some of that requires you to know what is churn, what columns should I look at, what tables should I look at, okay, what's the month over month piece mean, right? Sure, then maybe you can generate the window function, you can tweak it a little bit, or maybe you'll do that part correctly. But just getting to that point of like, hey, I need to look at month over month retention, and here's how it should vaguely look at a high level, that still takes a human, I think, right now. And I think that's half the battle of writing SQL queries. It's not the exact syntax, it's not the exact window function. It's just even putting into words like, hey, I first want to collect data from five different tables, put them in one spot, clean them in this way, and then I'll look at month over month retention because I have the domain experience to know that this data is dirty or I have the domain experience to know that my data actually lives in five different places, not in this one table. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And I can only imagine that it's going to become like perhaps a solution for really simple problems, but maybe an accelerating force for people who are doing more complex work. Yes. But it's utility, not necessarily a replacement. Yeah. And I think I wouldn't worry about it because we're talking about it here and now. Like, <laughs> I still still think these things have some ways to go. So I think you're good for the next five or 10 years. And again, learning SQL, you can learn the basics in a weekend and you yep. can kind of get pretty decent in like just a month. So I still think there's enough utility for the next few years that makes it worth investing in it. Totally. Yeah. This is kind of a, a tangent here, but what's like the biggest mistake you've made writing a bunch of SQL? Like, did you ever have something where you just like deleted a database? Did you ever have something where your query was just like flat out like wrong, lagged everything to hell? Like nothing comes to mind. I've had some weird bugs for sure, but nothing comes to mind with a wacky SQL query because I've seen too many of those memes where you accidentally delete production data to make that mistake. I think the biggest SQL issues that I've had is answering the wrong question. So you're deep into it, you get an answer, you're like proud of the answer, you spend a day writing really crazy SQL to get the answer, you bring it to the business stakeholder, the PM, and they're like, okay, but I don't really care about this number. Like, doesn't, you know, so what? Like, it's orthogonal to what I really care about. And I'm like, oh, okay. So that's been the biggest mistake. It's almost like, forget the SQL, it's just doing the wrong thing. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of interesting questions about how you define and assess good metrics, which, you know, is getting back to like what you said is the the business thinking part of data science, right? Like, yep. just because you can get the data doesn't mean it's useful. Yep. And metric definition is definitely something that gets tested in these interviews, because it is so thorny. I'll give you an example. This is a real Facebook data science interview question, but a product manager, they could get face it too. And the question is, Suppose there's a beta test, Facebook dating in Brazil. You have three months of data from Brazil about how Facebook dating works. What are some metrics you'd use to define the success of the product? Okay. It's purposely vague, purposely nebulous. They're purposely trying to say, how would you even measure success? Like, what does it look like? And I've had a lot of people tell me, churn, I wouldn't want people to quit my dating app. I'd want high retention, which, you know, I might have primed them to think that because that's exactly what I worked on at Facebook lowering churn of new users at Facebook, increasing retention. That's exactly what I did at Rapstock on my own thing. But you think about it for a dating app for a second. Churn. Churn means someone quitting the app. I mean, if you find your girlfriend, you find your future wife on the app, you quit. Is that really a loss? Is churn really a problem? 
I mean, in practice, of course, there's a difference between churn because you don't like the product and churn because you found someone. But just that little rabbit hole of like, I've made my career about fighting churn. And then I give you this example where it's like, oh, wait, churn might not be the right metric or you need to do something nuanced there. So this is just a quick example of how even obvious metrics start to like, in the face of like a product, in the face of a real business, start to fall apart. Yeah, great example. Yeah. So beyond the work you're doing, right? Like acing the data science interview, data lemur, all of the other crazy things you've done in your career. Are there any like educators or tech content creators out there that you really like look up to and think are doing incredible work? Yeah, I think Zach Wilson, he's a big creator on LinkedIn, about 250,000 followers on there. I think he just started his Instagram and TikTok, but he's a really big popular voice in the data engineering space, but also software space. I really like his content because it's very practical. He used to be a tech lead at Airbnb. He also was a data engineer at Facebook, and we kind of overlapped for a month or two. I didn't know him back then, but we overlapped for briefly. He's tech lead at Airbnb, and he also worked at Netflix. So crazy stack resume, got to do some really cool data engineering work. But given that he's worked at Facebook, Netflix, and Airbnb, his content is very down to earth, very simple, very accessible, never trying to show you the latest and greatest and things, but just like keeping it real on how data systems should work. And he's also worked a little bit as a data scientist. And of course, he's done some software work too. He knows some ML stuff. So he's just another great all-rounder who just talks about data well and keeps it very real. And he talks a lot about his mental health journey. So overall, big follow, big fan of the work Zach Wilson's doing. I love that. You mentioned he has 250,000 followers on LinkedIn. When do you think LinkedIn became a legit social platform? Like, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Yes. Well, so shameless plug, you can also follow me. I have about 140,000 followers on LinkedIn. There you go. You're catching up. Yeah, I'm working on it. Well, funny enough, I've been writing since 2018. And I think Zach started during COVID in 2020. So more so like Zach has like quickly eclipsed me about almost a year ago. I think LinkedIn was always seen as kind of corny, kind of weird, kind of try hard kind of like fake motivational BS guru type work. I think COVID, it started changing a little bit. But I think in the last year, year and a half, they've really invested in creators and building features for creators. And I think that us humans, we're all social people. I think there's nothing wrong with their feature set. It was just this kind of stigma of like, why would you post on LinkedIn? That at some point you see enough people post on it. And it's like, oh, okay, maybe that's not too bad. So I think in the last six months, year, we've definitely broken that barrier. And I don't think that anyone is viewed that weirdly. I think when I was writing in 2018, it was a weird thing to do. But I think LinkedIn's a great place if you want to talk about technical things and talk about career-related things, which is exactly what I do. So Yeah, it's pretty incredible how it's transitioned so quickly. Like I remember it as a spam farm, but yeah. like it very much feels like similar content and community and interaction that I used to see on Twitter. Right. Like when I was coming up, like Twitter was where people posted that stuff and they still do. But for whatever reason, it's more accessible on LinkedIn now. Yes, I think Twitter is cool. And I think amongst academics or Silicon Valley folks and startup people, Twitter is still really hot. But the world isn't Silicon Valley. The world isn't academia. The world isn't cutting edge ML work. The world is just people talking about interviews and talking about how they start in their career and that kind of work. On Twitter, you're just a nobody, unless you're Elon Musk talking about the beginning of his career or just some yeah. like famous ML researcher. No one cares. But on LinkedIn, there's definitely a human aspect to it, which is like even a stranger, you can see their work history. So if you just see a random director or VP, they're not a famous world changing researcher, but they're just someone who's doing cool work at a respectable company. And they talk about how they were incarcerated 
as their youth or they had these problems or this or that people open up and i think it used to look very corny because there'd be all those fake sob stories but i think over time people have been able to be their authentic self so i've even also posted some stories like that about my time working at facebook and just been able to be open in a way that tech twitter on on twitter you can't really be that open because everyone's just trying to like raise vc money and talk about the latest in ml so yeah no it's definitely become a true social network yeah so the question i always like to end on is when you think about like the wider world of science and tech is there like an aspirational figure that you would love to like take to lunch pick their brain for a while just like hear how they see the world i want to say one person in tech and one not in tech okay cool one in tech would be sam altman specifically because i used to think like ubi was really dumb i'm still not going to endorse ubi or anything right now but now that you see how far ml and ai are coming maybe at some point in my own lifetime agi might come about or a lot of these jobs might get automated i could see why someone like that would think ubi would be a good idea uh-huh. and i think that four five six years ago when he was talking about it i was just like come on this is some whack stuff it's never going to work who cares it's going to make people lazy but you know the guy's been in ai for so long he could kind of predict this the second thing he blew me away with was about a year or two ago he said people will be surprised that ai will take creative jobs over first and i'm like what are you talking about you know and this is back when they do auto generated music like chip tunes and i'm like this is this is so lame this is for like nerdy people the images looked so fake like just psychedelic type art But now fast forward 2 years later it's like wait I can see why he would think that creative jobs are actually more in danger than the average plumber or bricklayer or handyman right so I see that like all these you know stock photos as an industry of photography creative writing SEO any of these things they're really going to be impacted so because of this I want to see what's coming down next because this guy's been right two times in two places where I totally wrote him off and he's been totally I think correct non-tech person I'd want to take to dinner or lunch DJ Khaled just because what does that guy do he just shouts we the best at every song and he has the A-list people on his song I don't know what he does but somehow he gets to collab with everyone in the rap industry somehow we all know he's kind of corny I don't know what his talent is but clearly he's doing something to make a hit after hit where he basically doesn't do anything I want to understand what he's doing and what are the people skills involved to bring these big personalities these big rappers together who never collaborate on song after song after song you just got to go get lost at sea with him on a jet ski exactly i mean he's a corny guy but clearly he's figured out something about marketing and people and music cuz yeah he put snapchat on the map when he got lost on sea and snapped the whole thing yeah og guy og for yeah. sure Great. Both very good uh, good examples. Awesome, Nick. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. I really enjoyed our conversation. We'll include notes for people to find Data Lemur and Ace the Data Science interview, but thank you again. And if folks enjoyed listening, I hope you did. You know, like and subscribe and follow along. We're going to be publishing more episodes soon, but thanks everyone and happy hacking. Thank you again and thank you to the whole MLH community for being a part of my career journey. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. 
And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking. Thank <laughs> you.